Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. We continue in our study of Genesis, and we are once again in Genesis chapter 9. And again, this will not be a normal exposition of Genesis. This is a special topical message interrupting our exegesis born out of the historic abuse of Genesis chapter 9. The title of this unique message, this topical message, is The Curse of Ham, Slavery, Racism, Wokeism, Social Justice, and BLM in America. Again, The Curse of Ham, Slavery, Racism, Wokeism, Social Justice, and BLM in America. From Genesis 9:18 through 29. Read with me there, please. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the Son, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant." May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Again, this will not be our exposition of this portion of Genesis. We will do that in weeks ahead. We are considering today, in particular, the curse of Ham. What is the curse of Ham? Are the cursed descendants of Ham black Africans? And does it justify Africans being enslaved? Soon after I became a Christian, there were men who told me about the supposed curse of Ham on black men. The reality is, technically speaking, there is no curse of Ham. There's the curse of Ham's youngest son, as we just read, the curse upon Canaan. Yes, Genesis 10, 6-20 does make it clear that the descendants of Ham include Ethiopians. But once again, there is no curse of Ham. There is a curse on Canaan, which would include the Canaanites. And we know historically the Canaanites fell under the judgment of God when God sent Israel in to subdue them. Historically in America, there was an errant belief, a sinful belief born out of Genesis 9 and the so-called curse of Ham, which really was the curse of Canaan. In early America, those who had slaves and those who justified slavery looked primarily to Genesis 9 to justify slavery. They justified not only slavery, but racism. They declared the African to be under the judgment of Ham, and thus it justified all sorts of abusive treatment and their ongoing slavery. That is a twisting of Scripture. All twisting of Scripture is dangerous. This particular one resulted in great suffering and tragedy for African men, women, and children for many 
generations. And so I'm laboring to correct that error with this message. And I think you'll understand in our current era the importance of that. Not only did they believe that it was the curse of Ham, but they believed that because Ham's name means hot in Hebrew, that that was evidence the dark-skinned people of the world who lived in the hot climates were indeed the descendants of Ham and thus under his curse. Invoking the curse of Ham was common during the Atlantic slave trade in an effort to justify forced race-based slavery. Sermons, political speeches, publications, and general references to the curse of Ham were especially prevalent in the United States in the lead-up to the Civil War. Both before and after that era, however, Christian scholars in the North and the South have consistently and firmly declared the practice of race-based slavery to be wholly contrary to the teaching of Scripture, and that racism, man-stealing, and abusive servitude are all expressly forbidden as sin in the Bible, and all of God's people say amen to that. I was sent an article by one of your brothers this last week. The title of it is Black History Month, The Facts by Carol Hornsby Haynes. She says this, the February is Black History Month and a time to celebrate the many significant and far-reaching accomplishments of black Americans. Instead, we're endlessly bombarded by vitriolic media, Hollywood, and academia with claims that America was founded on slavery. Christianity is rejected as, quote, the white man's religion that justified slavery. A historical review shines the light of the truth on these false charges. Despite the assertion that America cornered the market on slavery, slavery has been a worldwide institution since the beginning of civilization. Thomas Sowell, renowned black economist and philosopher, provides insights about slavery in his book chapter titled Twisted History. Quote, of all the tragic facts about the history of slavery, the most astonishing to an American today is that although slavery was a worldwide institution for thousands of years, nowhere in the world was slavery a controversial issue prior to the 18th century. People of every race and color were enslaved and enslaved others. White people were still being bought and sold as slaves in the Ottoman Empire decades after American blacks were freed. Slavery was just not an issue, not even among intellectuals, much less among political leaders until the 18th century. And then it was an issue only in Western civilization among those who turned against slavery. In the 18th century were George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, and other American leaders. You could research all the 18th century Africa or Asian or Middle East without finding any comparable rejection of slavery there. But who is singled out for scathing criticism today? American leaders of the 18th century, the founders of our nation, the penmen of the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. Seoul shows that it was the 17th century Christians who attacked slavery's immorality. The New York Times 1619 Project, which has been pushed into more than 3,500 schools in all 50 states, claims that America was founded in 1619, not 1776, when the colonists declared their independence from Great Britain, when a shipload of Africans kidnapped by the Portuguese arrived in the British colony of Virginia. 
Yet the first cargo was indentured servants, not slaves, though slave laws were later passed. Upon earning their freedom, over a set number of years, they received land from the state. Not only did whites own slaves, but blacks as well. One of the first slave owners in Virginia was a freed black who had been enslaved in Angola and sold as an indentured servant. After earning his freedom and receiving land from the state, Anthony Johnson became a wealthy tobacco farmer with slaves. A former black slave became a wealthy plantation owner with slaves. That was the world. That was the world, independent of the color of anyone's skin or origin of nation. Though the Virginia legislature tried repeatedly to end the slave traffic by imposing prohibitive duties, Great Britain always vetoed their legislation. It was only after American independence that the African slave trade was abolished by the U.S. Constitution in 1809. America was not founded on slavery. America was never a major world leader in the African slave trade. None of that is to say that there weren't guilty men and women in America, in the North and the South but we must put it in perspective. America was not founded on slavery. America was never a major world leader in the African slave trade. Of the 12.7 million Africans sold into slavery, largely by African tribes capturing other African tribes and selling them for profit, which they did long before white Europeans ever began to purchase African slaves. From 1501 to 1875, 46% went to Portugal, 26% to England, 11% to France, 8% to Spain, 4% to the Dutch, and only 2.4% of the 12.7 million Africans sold into slavery went to the United States. It is estimated that there are currently 40 million slaves today, worldwide. Three times more than the total number in the 400-year history of the transatlantic African slave trade. Of the nearly 200 nations in the world today, 94, nearly 50%, still have not fully criminalized slavery or the slave trade. Contrary to the progressive propaganda that we are a racist nation, the United States is ranked as one of the top nations in the world for fighting slavery, the slave trade, and human trafficking. American writer and ex-slave Frederick Douglass was convinced by abolitionists that the Constitution was pro-slavery. After examining the document himself, Douglass concluded that the Constitution was anti-slavery. He declared, quote, I defy the presentation of a single pro-slavery clause in it. To the contrary, it will be found to contain principles and purposes entirely hostile to the existence of slavery. Frederick Douglass, an ex-slave and friend of Abraham Lincoln. Dinesh D'Souza provides an excellent further insight into America's founding fathers, slavery, and Frederick Douglass in his book, United States of Socialism, pages 56 through 58. He says this, Frederick Douglass, the runaway slave, hated slavery too. At first, he viewed the American founding purely from the point of view of the slave. Why didn't the founders outlaw slavery at the outset? Douglas couldn't see what Lincoln saw. The founders could not do this and still make a union. 
Slavery prior to the founding was legal in all the states. Many and certainly the southern states would refuse to join a union that forbade slavery at the outset. So the founders chose, in Lincoln's words, to create a union that tolerated slavery. They hoped and even expected that slavery would continue to lose political power in such a union. Even Jefferson, one of the largest slaveholders among them, anticipated a total emancipation. The founders really believed all men are created equal. They simply couldn't make good on that belief in their own time. So in Lincoln's phrase, they chose to declare the rights whose enforcement would follow as soon as the circumstances permitted. When he heard this argument, Douglas' reaction was that this was very easy for a white man to say. Douglas carried his animus over to Lincoln. Lincoln, he charged, was the white man's president. Blacks were at best the accidental beneficiaries of his actions. After all, Lincoln didn't campaign in 1860 to get rid of slavery. He campaigned merely to arrest the spread of slavery. Even that, Douglas bitterly noted, was framed in the Republican platform in terms of opening up the new territories to white settlement. Until he met Lincoln, Douglas never considered the question from Lincoln's side. Lincoln was white. Why should he give priority to blacks? Douglas, after all, considered it right for nat- and natural for him to give priority to his own race. Douglas saw that Lincoln treated him not as a black man, but simply as a man. And that, Douglas realized, was enough. He didn't need Lincoln to see difference. He only needed Lincoln to recognize their common humanity. And let me interrupt Mr. D'Souza here briefly to say even modern thinkers, such as Morgan Freeman, not that I'm sanctioning everything that he thinks, but Morgan Freeman doesn't believe that it should even be a Black History Month. He says, quote, it's ridiculous. He simply wants to be seen as an American, not an African-American, not a black American, not a black man, just as an American man. And he wants all history that's noteworthy, no matter what color a man or woman is, to be noted. And he argues that it encourages racism when you're constantly pointing out everyone's skin color and when you're constantly pointing people to a Black History Month. He says, where's the Jewish History Month? What about the other minorities in America? And he has a great point. Back to Mr. D'Souza. Over time, Douglas reconsidered his longtime hatred for the founders. He came to see that the founders, too, articulated universal norms and rights that included him, even while not recognizing his blackness. Douglas termed slavery the mere scaffolding to be removed when the American edifice was completed. And Douglas also championed women's rights and women's suffrage in the understanding that these two were an application of the equality principle of the Declaration of Independence. Quote, all men was a phrase that was from the beginning intended to include women. Speaking to the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society just days after the Civil War ended, Douglas raised the question, quote, what must be done for slaves? His answer, do nothing with us. Your doing with us has already played the mischief with us. Do nothing with us. If the Negro cannot stand on his own legs, let him fall. All I ask is give him a chance to stand on his own legs. Let him alone. If you only untie his hands and give him a chance, I think he will live. Douglas' most famous speech 
The one he delivered most often was in keeping with this philosophy of self-reliance. In fact, it went beyond self-reliance to stress the theme of self-invention. It was titled, quote, Self-Made Men. And it actually flows quite well with the God-given certain unalienable right to life, liberty, and hear this, hear this, the pursuit of happiness. It is on us to pursue it. It's not a right that the government makes us happy. We must pursue it. Red, yellow, black, and white. America, Douglas argued, is the land of the self-made man and the fulfillment of its original principles. It offers that prospect to the woman no less than to the man, to the black man no less than to the white man. Douglas himself, the self-taught former slave who became a publisher, an orator, and a diplomat, was a walking embodiment of the self-made man. Douglas, who started life at the bottom, became what he could become only in America, a giant among men. He did so despite enduring the slings and arrows of racial prejudice, both in the North and the South. He became a patriot and a stalwart to the Republican Party who insisted at election time that, quote, the Republican Party is the ship, all else is the sea. Here, in the argument and person of Douglas, is the moral case for America and a full and decisive refutation of the identity socialist indictment of the American founding. Dinesh D'Souza, the United States of Socialism. So we have thus far rejected the curse of Ham as a justification for race-based slavery, and we brought a little historic light to America's founding fathers, their Christian worldview, and America's slave trade. But why did God regulate the ownership and treatment of slaves. Isn't that evil? Doesn't that make God and the Bible evil? Many would argue that today. Pastor John MacArthur says this on the topic of slavery in the New and Old Testament era. Slavery was an integral social component to the Greco-Roman world in the first century. Slaves were the employees who did the work for their wealthy Masters. Again, it's hard for us in the world that we are born into, this world of unprecedented freedom and privilege and opportunity, a world that the rest of the world throughout the history of the world could never even imagine. It's hard for us to imagine the world that virtually every man, woman, and child lived and died in, a world where slavery was normal. It was part of the economic system of society. All races, all peoples, all lands. And so the New Testament era was that era. Slaves were the employees who did the work for their wealthy masters. It was a widespread scheme of employment. In fact, the entire economic structure of the Roman Empire depended on it. To understand slavery, believers today must strip away their preconceived notions of it. Those notions are drawn largely from the racial slavery of the pre-Civil War American South, which bears only some resemblance to slavery in the first century Roman Empire. In the ancient Near East, much of the seasonal field work and part-time project work was done by hired day laborers. Permanently employed domestic slaves served as managers, cooks, artisans, and teachers, becoming a part of the household, almost like family. In many respects, they resembled the indentured servants of the American colonial era. Slaves were acquired in several different ways. Many were prisoners of war. They could also be purchased. Some people sold themselves into slavery. 
Others were sold to pay debts. Slaves could be received as gifts or inherited. Still others were born as slaves and remained in that role. The system was not perfect, but it was workable. Most of the abuses came from the evil hearts of men, not from the institution itself. Such abuses can be found in every system of employment, whether slavery, feudalism, communism, or capitalism. The Old Testament never forbade slavery, but carefully guarded the rights of slaves. Jewish slaves could not be held for more than six years unless they voluntarily chose to remain. Those who came into slavery with a wife and children could take them when they left. Those given a wife by their master, however, could not take her until her time was up. That was necessary to protect the rights of the masters. Slaves who were abused by their masters were to be set free. Their religious rights, such as enjoying the Sabbath rest, were also protected. Slaves also enjoyed civil rights. The murder of a slave brought punishment. Foreign slaves seeking asylum in Israel were to be protected. Slaves had economic rights, including the right to own other slaves. Do you see how deep the system was? Slaves owned slaves. The nation of Israel even had state slaves, similar to civil service employees. Jewish slaves in the New Testament time were similarly protected. They were to be treated as equal to the eldest son in a family. So protected were they that an old Jewish saying went, whoever buys a Jewish slave buys himself a master. Gentile slaves were not always so well treated, but on the whole were better off than day laborers. Slaves had their food, clothing, and housing provided along with a small wage and security. Subtracting the cost of food, clothing, and housing from a day laborer's wages often left them worse off than a slave. Slavery was thus a workable, if not ideal, system. As in the Old, the New Testament nowhere calls for its abolition. By the New Testament era, slavery was waning in the Roman Empire, though there was still an enormous number of slaves. For Jesus and the apostles to have called for slavery's abolition would have been to promote unemployment and social chaos. Further, the saving message of the gospel would have been swallowed up in the call for social reform. And I remind you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I remind you that whatever life you live, at whatever social system, at whatever level of social strata, it is brief. It is the smallest dash between two dates on your tombstone. And eternity is forever and ever and ever and ever. There is the priority of the mission to seek and to save the lost that cannot be lost in any social issue. Furthermore, the saving message of the gospel would have been swallowed up in the call for social reform. Eventually, the influence of Christianity helped bring an end to abusive forms of slavery in the Roman Empire. End quote from Pastor John MacArthur. The Black Lives Matter movement And modern atheists respond by saying, but, 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 all slavery is evil. Therefore, God and the Bible are evil. And they are saying that. Oh, yes. Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, and all the Black Lives Matter folks and their friends in the liberal media are saying slavery is evil. The Bible sanctions slavery. Doesn't matter what kind and what era Therefore, the Bible and the God thereof are evil for not condemning all slavery and should be rejected out of hand as 
evil. The calls to cancel God, the calls to cancel the Bible, the calls to cancel anyone who would preach the Word of God are growing louder. They're growing clearer and more authoritative every day. Sadly, many unthinking Christians don't have an answer for this. There are two basic approaches in formulating an answer to why the Bible allows for slavery. And the outcome will be determined by what a person accepts as the absolute authority over the definition of good and evil. The first approach goes something like this. Follow the logic here. Mankind arbitrarily defines good and evil. Mankind declares slavery to be evil in all situations and all times. God allows for slavery and regulates it in the Bible. Therefore, God and the Bible are evil. That's the current prevailing logic in our godless culture. Let's change the scenario slightly. This is the same logic. Mankind arbitrarily defines good and evil. Mankind declares marriage to be a man and a man, a woman and a woman, a man and a beast, a woman and a beast, three men, a woman and an arbitrary wall in the middle of a city. That's real, etc., etc., etc. A woman actually married a wall. God declares marriage to be one man and one woman, and all sex outside of that marriage covenant to be sinful in the Bible. Therefore, God and the Bible are evil. That's our culture. When sinful man arbitrarily gets to decide what's good and evil, God and the Word of God, in which God reveals that which is truly good and evil, are always going to be declared evil by sinful men. It doesn't matter the topic. So what's wrong with the logic in those two scenarios? It begins without God, the creator of the universe, the creator of mankind, and the only absolute law Giver, the word arbitrary is important. Did you note it? Arbitrary, no foundation, no justification. It's not absolute. It's changing. It is mere opinion. It is mere preference, individual or societal. It begins without God, the creator of the universe, the creator of mankind, and the only absolute lawgiver. It begins in a presumably godless, uncreated, lawless universe that doesn't exist. There is no uncreated, lawless universe. There is only this universe which God created and in which His laws reign. In that fictional universe, men arbitrarily decide good and evil according to the whims of their individual or collective hearts. There is no actual standard for good or evil unless you begin with God, His Word, and the absolute standard He has revealed in His Word. Without God, and the Bible, all you have is opinion, individual preference, and societal preference, which all change rapidly, have you noticed, and are no real, actual authority. Truth is changing minute by minute. Science, so-called, is changing minute by minute. Men are now women, women are men. Forget chromosomes, forget DNA, doesn't matter. There is no real, good, or evil without God in the Bible. In fact, without God in the Bible, men are mere cosmic accidents. They're reasoning, talking, walking, space dust without cause, purpose, or definition for anything, even gender, man and woman, as our culture is clearly displayed in the self-destructive madness of its Romans 1 suppression of God and truth. Without the God of the Bible, the God who created everything, the God who defines good and evil, the only God there is, we descend further and further into absurdity and wickedness. Mankind has now united together to say men wearing dresses is good, men pretending to be women with, in mixed martial arts competitions and crushing women's faces is good. 
Men and boys pretending to be female and taking women's spots on the sports team is good. Men and boys in women's bathrooms and showers is good. And as the cherry on top, a man named Richard Levine is the father of two children whose mother he divorced in 2013 before subsequently naming himself Rachel, putting on a dress and being appointed by Joe Biden, a friend of the Roman Catholic Church's Pope, for a cabinet position as an assistant secretary at the Department of Health and Human Services. A new health secretary who refused last week to answer Senator Rand Paul's question in a Senate hearing as to whether he supported the idea of the government backing a child against his or her parents if they choose to mutilate their bodies in a futile attempt to change their gender. He refused to answer the question before the Senate. Without the God of the Bible, the God who created everything, the God who defines good and evil, the only God there is, we descend further and further into absurdity and wickedness. Furthermore, If good and evil are decided by consensus, the fact that virtually all mankind for most of recorded history has embraced slavery as good, or at least as acceptable, would mean slavery is good. Finally, the same men and women who are high on their self-righteous Black Lives Matter morality dope actively and openly support the murder of an average of 1,876 black babies in the United States of America every day. Their moral hypocrisy is astounding. Here's the logical, defensible, biblical position on God's allowance and regulation of slavery in the Bible. Follow the logic. God alone is holy, all-wise, and unchanging, and thus he alone defines good and evil in the Bible. God declares slavery to be permissible in some situations and provides laws to protect the slave from abuse. That which is contrary to God, his word, his law, and his commands is evil. End of story. Game over. Checkmate. Mankind is innately sinful, foolish, and ever-changing, and thus categorically and demonstrably unqualified to determine good and evil. End of story. Game over. Checkmate. Brothers and sisters, God and the Bible are the final authority And our modern thinking about right and wrong, good and evil, has to be brought into submission to the unchanging, non-arbitrary, eternal truth we find in the Holy Bible. It is the God of Scripture who providentially brought an end to slavery in America and Great Britain and much of the world beyond through America and Great Britain's consistent application of the Holy Bible and the biblical worldview that flows from it. The godless, secular worldview built on Big Bang cosmology's accidental universe and Darwinian evolution's survival of the fittest in which life supposedly spontaneously erupted in a lifeless material universe by accident and subsequently crawled from the primordial goo, became apes, and then became various races of relatively hairless ape men at various levels of evolutionary development cannot possibly provide an absolute, unchanging, non-arbitrary standard of law, love, or human value and dignity as image bearers of God. Quite the opposite. The godless worldview of Big Bang cosmology and Darwinian evolution constantly pressed into the hearts and minds of our children and adults in grade school, middle school, high school, college, university, and in all mainstream media is the foundation for moral chaos and unchecked evil. Ken Ham, in his ministry, Answers in Genesis, rightly notes, Darwin... In his world-changing tomes, The Origin of the Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races and the Struggle for Life. Did you even know that was the rest of the title? 
The origin of the species is usually the title given. It's the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of the favored races in the struggle for life. As well as in his book, The Descent of Man, proclaimed his belief that some people groups are more highly evolved than others. In The Descent of Man, Darwin repeatedly called people with darker skin degraded and hundreds of times described them as savages. In fact, Darwin actually predicted in The Descent of Man that civilized people would someday exterminate such savages. He declared dark-skinned men to be savage and said that we would exterminate them. Darwin's own words provided, quote, scientific justification for the next century of racially-based atrocities. Think Adolf Hitler, Mein Kampf. Think Nazi. Think Auschwitz. Though evolution is not the cause of racism, the late evolutionist Stephen Jay Gould noted, quote, biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1859 when The Origin of the Species was written, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. Evolution, despite claims to the contrary, cannot rescue the world from the scourge of racism. The God of the Bible and the truth of the Bible contained in the Old and New Testaments is the only standard of good and evil and the only power to stop evil. Look back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's the importance of that? The origin of the cosmos is given. The cosmos created by the eternal, omnipotent, omniscient God of the Bible. The only logical explanation that there is something rather than nothing because ex nihilo nihil fit. Nothing comes from nothing. The only logical explanation for the material universe. The only universe in which mankind isn't a cosmic accident. Groping along in the darkness of a godless accidental universe without hope of any standard of right or wrong, good or evil, without any ground to stand on, to cry out against oppression, to cry out against tyranny, to cry out against slavery, to cry out against rape, to cry out against theft, to cry out against molestation, to cry out against any other evil. Without Genesis 1-1, you have no ground, morally speaking, to stand on, to cry out against any evil. Praise God for Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God, the eternal, everlasting to everlasting, preexistent, dependent upon nothing, omnipotent, omniscient God created everything. Secondly, Genesis 1.26. Then God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit said this, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What is the significance of Genesis 1, 26? Through 28, as we consider the curse of ham, slavery, racism, wokeism, social justice, and BLM in America, here's the significance. We have in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, the origin of one race, mankind, created in the image of God. 
There is no possible racism if our culture and our truth is built on Genesis. Chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. For there is one race, mankind, created in God's image and thus precious. Precious. We're not mere glorified cockroaches. We're not mere glorified apes. We're created in the image of God. We have eternal souls. Jesus took upon our likeness and came and suffered in our place to redeem us. We do not die like dogs. Not only is there one race, not only are we created in God's image, we're created male and female. And a few decades ago, we didn't fully comprehend how vital that was. But now with the absurdity of man's descent into sin coming to full blossom in a horrific bouquet of nightmarish displays of men dressed as women and women dressed as men, men taking hormones and having surgeries to become women and women taking hormones and having surgeries in an attempt to become men while they will always and only be men and women, the very men and women that God created them to be. It is mutilation that now the government is sanctioning, the government's funding, and in states like Oregon, the government has declared that they will override the parental rights on behalf of the children who want to undergo these surgeries, who want to receive these hormone-suppressing medications from places like Planned Parenthood. And Planned Parenthood is supplementing its abortion income by mutilating men and women, boys and girls, and drugging them to suppress their masculinity and femininity. Just last week, we saw the evidence of that as we were ministering the gospel at Planned Parenthood. Transvestite men, men dressed as women, coming to receive their medications from Planned Parenthood. And so Genesis 1, 26 through 28 is of profound importance. There is one race. That's the death of racism. That's the death of race-based slavery. We're created in God's image. Even in societies where there was slavery, those slaves were created in the image of God. They're precious. They had eternal souls. That changes things. Male and female. That is the foundational reality of our existence. And we're denying that and we can only reap the whirlwind as a result. Don't miss also that the man and woman, Adam and Eve, and all men and women to descend from their loins were to rule over the critters. We are distinct from the critters. This is all in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. We're not mere animals. We are distinct from the animals. Our Portland... Neighbors are confused. I can tell you firsthand. I talk to them nearly every week, ministering the Word of God in Portland, and they are utterly convinced that meat is murder, that critters are people too, that cats are children, dogs are children, and they don't just mean it affectionately, they mean it literally. And who are you to argue with me? My cat is just as precious as your little Z to embrace the Portland worldview. Which, by the way, is again part of the currently fashionable insanity. We're no longer to call children boys and girls from birth based upon their genitalia or their chromosomes. 
were to let them decide at some point along the way and treat them as if they're some unisex being, I suppose. This is a full Romans 1, 18-32, God-hating madness. And we cannot be silent. We must love our neighbors and speak the truth to them in love. We must love God by loving our neighbors and speaking the truth to them in love. And we get all this before we even leave Genesis chapter 1. These are foundational truths that change everything. And the further we go in our rejection of God, the God of all truth, the God who defines good and evil, the God who defines mankind, the God who defines man and woman, the further we go in our rejection of God and God's truth, the greater the destruction upon the individual and the whole of mankind. Consider Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, and I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but here we have the origin of marriage between one man and one woman for life. One man, one woman for life. And Adam says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They were both naked, the man and his wife. And we're not ashamed. And it's in that context of marriage that sexual union is holy. And outside of the context of the marriage covenant, it is always unholy. It is always sinful. It always reaps the whirlwind. The sexual relationship is like nuclear power. It's either nuclear power set off like a bomb outside of marriage, or it's like nuclear power that creates great energy and life inside of marriage. These are the truths we get from the first two chapters of Genesis. And marriage is the foundation of all culture, all society, without marriage. And hear me, this insane BLM culture, they're assaulting marriage. They're assaulting family as oppressive. The idea of family is now white privilege and oppressive. They're teaching children in public schools that their family unit is an oppression They should be wards of the state, not mother and father. By the way, that works nicely with communism. We get to Genesis chapter 3 in God's Word. What do we find in Genesis 3 verses 1 through 21? Again, for the sake of time, I can't read it all. We find the origin of sin. The origin of sin in the Garden of Eden. The serpent comes and tempts Eve and Adam with her. We find judgment We find strife, the origin of strife in marriage. We find again that there is one race, and we find the proto-evangelium, the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ in that judgment upon the serpent. God pronounces in Genesis 3 verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your heel and you shall bruise his head. The seed of the woman is the Lord Jesus. This is a prophecy of Jesus to come the virgin-born child who would crush the serpent's head, who would defeat sin, Satan, and death at the cross. All this in the first few chapters. The origin of sin, the origin of death, judgment, strife in marriage. Again, one race, one race. Where do we get that? Verse 20, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. We're all Related through Adam and Eve. One race, mankind, descendants of the first man and first woman. 
Genesis 3.20's truth crushes the lies of Darwinian evolution and the foundation of all racism. Without the word of God, we have lawlessness. Without the word of God, every man does what's right in his own eyes. Without the word of God, we have no path to truth, no path to absolute declarations or stands or convictions regarding good and evil. In Genesis 9, 18 through 19, it says this, Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Genesis 9 isn't the foundation for racism that some twisted it into historically. No, it's the end of racism. Genesis 9 crushes the foundation of racism. It says, from these, the whole earth was populated. There's one race. And Genesis declares that we're the race of mankind from Adam and Eve. And then once again, it was all brought back together in Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their descendants. And we're all descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives. We're all descendants of Noah. In Leviticus 19.18, the Old Testament's highest law of God is the law of love based upon the truths of Genesis. What truth? That we're created in God's image and thus have dignity and value and are worthy of love. Why do you eat chickens and not children? Because children are created in the image of God. But if we go far enough on the path we're on, we will no longer have that standard. For Adam called his wife's name Eve... For she was the mother of all living. No racism. From these, the whole earth was populated. No racism. You shall love your neighbors yourself. No racism. Leviticus 19.18. Exodus 21.16. While, yes, the Old Testament regulated slavery for the protection of slaves, it forbids man-stealing or kidnapping in the strongest possible terms. Exodus 21.16 says, He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. In Matthew 22.37-40, the Lord Jesus in the New Testament upholds the love of God and the love of our image-bearing neighbors in the strongest possible terms. So while there's not a direct prohibition of slavery in the New Testament, there is the highest possible command to love your neighbor as yourself, which in time is the seed that sprouted into the tree of freedom, the tree of liberty that we now enjoy. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. It's hard to be a slave owner long and love your neighbor as yourself when you consider that you would not want to be a slave. These are the seeds planted in the ground of the American soil that produced the liberty tree that the entire world has benefited from. In Acts 17, 26-27, the New Testament crushes the lies of Darwinian evolution and the foundation of racism. It reads, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14, we find the New Testament not directly condemning slavery, but planting again the seeds of truth 
that brought it to an end forever through the consistent application of the biblical worldview. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. That is the seed of liberty. Whether slave or free, whether Jew or Greek, we're all one in Christ. In Philemon, verses 8 through 16, the New Testament doesn't directly condemn slavery for all those reasons Pastor John MacArthur listed, but it planted the seeds of truth that brought slavery to an end forever in America and through much of the world through the consistent application of the biblical worldview over time, like no other worldview ever, least of all the godless, atheistic, big-bang, Darwinian evolution worldview that's prevailing today. There never would have been freedom for anyone. There never would have been feminism. No. There never would have been the freedom for women to say, look, that's not healthy treatment. It's gone way too far into godless and wicked treatment, but there was a time where, yes, women were ill-treated and dishonored in an unbiblical manner. Without Christianity, there could be no feminism. Without Christianity, there could be no abolition of slavery. Philemon 8-16 through says, Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you, the Apostle Paul writing, Though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and me. I am sending him back. This is an escaped slave. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, speaking of God's providence, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. No, the Apostle Paul didn't condemn slavery. He didn't command him to release him as a slave. He sent him back even, likely because the Roman government, if he was captured, would have put him to death. And so he sends him back, but he sends him back as a brother and exhorts him to receive him as a brother. That is a massive and glorious seed of liberty that grew up in time into a tree of liberty that brought about the end of slavery in America, in Great Britain, in the entire Western world, and in much of the world beyond. Dear saints, the biblical worldview of America's founding fathers was what made America the greatest, freest, and most prosperous nation for men and women of every skin color and creed on the planet. Anyone who says otherwise is either grossly ignorant or a liar. And hear me, there are many who are grossly ignorant because they've been lied to. They've been lied to. The idea that America suffers from systemic racism is a lie that's easily refuted by the reality of what's taking place at our border right now. 
People of color are fleeing from their nations of color and breaking into America because they know there is infinitely more freedom, opportunity, law and order, justice, and wealth available in America. The woke, social justice, critical race theory, intersectionality, Black Lives Matter movement isn't about racial equity. It's about creating a race war to facilitate unrest and the opportunity for social upheaval and the socialist reconstruction of our society. The founders of BLM are self-confessed Marxists. The Antifa BLM army that has been occupying and destroying Portland and every Democrat-run city across America assaulting and murdering innocent citizens and assaulting and murdering police officers is backed by the Democratic Party and the mainstream leftist media. It's their army implementing their communist will on America with communist sickle and hammer flags waving in the open and hammer and sickle symbols on their t-shirts and spray painted on their black helmets and combat shields. We are experiencing a communist insurrection, not racial reconciliation and justice for all. That should be obvious. Wall Street Journal columnist Jason Riley, who happens to be a black man of African heritage, says the race riots in Democrat-run cities following George Floyd's death are based on a lie, gleefully fomented by the left-wing media, that racist white cops are hunting black men. In reality, Riley said, this is a false narrative that is not supported by statistics or facts, but because of the sloppy blanket media coverage of these racially charged incidents and the -the over-the-top amplification they get on social media, Americans are being brainwashed into believing they happen all the time. A 2019 nationwide study conducted by Michigan State University and the University of Maryland concludes, quote, we find no evidence of anti-black or anti-Hispanic disparities across shootings. White officers are not more likely to shoot minority civilians than non-white officers. A few recent tweets will provide ample evidence. Kamala Harris, known by some as the vice president, tweeted out this. Here's the sad reality. What happened to George Floyd, Amud Arbery and Christian Cooper has gone on for generations to black Americans. Cell phones just made it more visible. Dismantling systemic racism in our nation starts with demanding justice and holding offenders accountable. Candace Owens responded to her saying this, the percentage of people killed by police officers annually, whites 55%, blacks 27%, Hispanics 19 Can anyone provide me the name of even one Hispanic or white person that was killed by a police officer this year? Basic facts. Leonidas Johnson, a black man of African heritage, said this, for every 10,000 black people arrested for violent crime, three are killed. For every 10,000 white people arrested for violent crime, four are killed. I'm going to keep tweeting this, he says, until someone can explain to me how this is possible if there is truly pervasive racial bias in policing, i.e., systemic racism is a lie. It's a useful lie to create social unrest, to bring about socialism. Dear saints, we live in unprecedented times. The Word of God has the answer for this time. The Word of God is the message 
that our perishing neighbors desperately need. The Word of God is the solution to the race war that the left is fostering, is throwing all their energy into to create. The Word of God is the answer to the evil of communism. The Word of God is the answer to the evil of racism. The Word of God is the answer to the evil of wokeism and social justice, which brings no justice. The Word of God is the answer to the communist organization known as Black Lives Matter that supports the slaughter of nearly 2,000 black babies every day. We are now facing men and women adorned with Black Lives Matter sweatshirts and t-shirts and stickers and banners. In fact, Planned Parenthood has put the banner on the wall and in the windows of their evil institutions. They murder 247 black babies every day across the United States of America in Planned Parenthoods that are placed strategically in black neighborhoods, targeting them. 79% of Planned Parenthoods that do surgical abortions are within walking distance of black neighborhoods. And yet, They've aligned themselves with BLM, and BLM has aligned themselves with Planned Parenthood, and they stand there in their parking lot as the greatest hypocrites on the planet, wearing their Black Lives Matter gear and crying out Black Lives Matter while they support the murder of black babies. And not just the murder, the use of their body parts for spare parts for white men and women. The hypocrisy of our current generation is astounding and horrific. And here's the reality. I'm having a very difficult time getting any one of them to actually step up and have a conversation to try to explain and justify how they can cry out black lives matter while defending the murder of beautiful black unborn babies in the face of the statistic that the most dangerous place for a black baby boy or girl is in his or her mother's womb. They cannot stand in the light of day. They cannot stand in the light of facts. They cannot stand in the light of God's word. But it's our responsibility to love them with action and truth and bring the word to bear upon all of this insanity, this sin, this suppression of truth and unrighteousness. The curse of Ham, slavery, racism, wokeism, social justice, and BLM in America. If you think more could be said, you're right, so much more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, how powerful it is. We thank you, Father, for the light of your word and your grace that we might walk therein. We thank you, Father, that we have the privilege of proclaiming your word, and we pray for the strength to do so out of love for you and love for our perishing neighbors and love for this land that once was free because the seed of the liberty that was planted by our forefathers that grew up into a great liberty tree. May we again plant those seeds, the biblical truths that form the biblical worldview that produced the freest, most prosperous, most blessed nation in the history of the world. We commit it all to you for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.